All right. So if you have a Bible tonight, uh, we'll be in Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25, and we're picking up um, our study through the book of Exodus that we left off in, uh, gosh, was it even December when it broke off? I don't think so. It was November, huh? And so as we pick it up here in chapter 25, um, we meet Moses at Mount Sinai with Israel. And the instructions he's about to give Moses regarding the sanctuary and the tabernacle are directly following Moses' time on Sinai as he received the Ten Commandments. And now God gives Moses these instructions for the tabernacle. And it's the same God, of course, who's going to dwell among the people as opposed to being up uh, on that mountain thundering and lightning that they were so scared of in the past. And God's going to come down and, and dwell with them and meet them and speak to them. It's interesting that as you look at the book of Exodus, <clears throat> Um, and even into the Pentateuch in general, <clears throat> the Jews had uh, and put so much emphasis on, lo- on the law. I think maybe we as Christians put so much emphasis on things like the Ten Commandments. When the reality is that if we look at the just sheer volume of what's written in Exodus, 13 whole chapters are devoted to just the tabernacle. From here all the way to chapter 31, from chapters 35 all the way to 40. And God gives everything in detail in the tabernacle because it matters, because it's important, because it's going to be the place where God and man meet for the purpose of worship. And, you know, God is so incredibly detailed as he uh, lays everything out here to Moses because the reality is he didn't want anything of man in it. The tabernacle was a reflection of the heavenly, as we'll get into a little bit later. And really, truly... It's all about God's way here in Exodus chapter 25. So then as we go to the chapter, if you would just remember um, that as we read, it's the same God from Exodus all the way to the New Testament. When we look in John 1.14, it tells us that, that Jesus, he dwelled with man, right, here on earth. In fact, it's interesting that that word in the King James, it says it, it's basically like tabernacle, the same word that it has for, for God being here in this uh, soon-to-be most holy and holy place. And so now the reality is that we enjoy the same fruits and even greater fruits of a life that's fulfilled by having God dwell in us because of the incarnation of Christ, who's the fulfillment of all the things that are um, shown just in shadow here in chapter 25. Let's go ahead and read the first nine verses here. It says, So then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from who everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings. Just so you shall make it. And we're, we're going to stop there. We're going to first look at the actual tabernacle. 
and God's coming to dwell among his people. First, uh, notice the offering that was required for the tabernacle. As the Lord commands Moses and speaks to him here, we know that that was the order of things in Exodus. Moses' role was to be that, that mediator, that go-between, as he would hear what God had to say from his own mouth and then communicate it to the people of God. Okay? And he was the one chosen. And of course, we know that the, the revelation was limited. One, because, well, the people didn't want it. They were scared. Okay? And two, because people were able to see that God was willing and able to speak. You know? And so Moses goes and he's commanded there to speak to Israel and tell them that they needed to bring this offering. And notice the key traits of this offering that it was something that was done willingly. Okay? That word offering there is, means exactly the same in Hebrew as it does in English, except with the added idea that it's something that you give that's separated for a sacred purpose as a gift to be consecrated, in particular, in this case, to the Lord. So you give it knowing how it's going to be used. And I think that maybe affects the way that we do things, yeah? When we know how something's going to get used. Those of you guys that work with your hands and build things, if it's just, you know, some kind of box with four walls that you need to build, you slap it together and there it goes. But if it's something that you know is going to be important, you spend some time crafting it and designing it and putting it together. And I think that's kind of implicit here in the offering, that God wanted the people to give this offering to him that was, like I said, something they did willingly. There was no coercion here. God didn't say, you've got to give it or else. Okay. We know that in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. And it, it was the same even in the Old Testament, although we often think of the law as something that's heavy-handed. It, it's God who wants people to come and to serve him, not because they're forced, but because they love him. Because the reality is that just like us, they were invited into participation in this covenant between God and them so that they would be his people and he would be their God, like it says elsewhere. And you know, and as believers now, we're blessed when we give of ourselves to God. And we know this is 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it talks about that. And not only are we blessed in terms of God taking care of us and sustaining us and our families, we're blessed spiritually. And as we give, and not just material things, but of ourselves, we understand that we bless other people as we honor God. And that really is, is our goal. Yes, we want to honor God. Yes, we want to please God. But we want people to draw those benefits because God's gifted each and every one of us to be able to serve him. So then when we think about this, it makes me wonder about how, how does God call us to live today? What does God want me to offer? Maybe it's not the resources of my large bank account or lack thereof. Maybe it's just my time. Maybe it's just a simple act of devotion. Maybe it's just the openness to be willing and ready and able to share with someone and speak with them about his love that's changed our lives. How does God call us to give today? You know, it starts with us, and of course we know that it radiates out. And that's very much the, the idea here, that as they're preparing this tabernacle, it's going to be a place where God's going to meet them. But as other nations would be able to see that there's a God in Israel, yeah. And that they would be drawn to and that they'd get saved too. To what degree are we called to offer? As much as we're willing to give, really. I mean, when you look in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when the early church is getting together and, 
and, you know, getting their feet under them. It says that they sold all that they had. And they gave to the church and gave to people in need because they're like, none of this stuff matters. We're, we're going to be out of here. Any minute. It's just such an example uh, to us in our walks today. Israel, in fact, would eventually give so much in their offering that Moses was, would have to stop them saying, no more. Stop. And we see this in Exodus chapter 36. He says, that's enough. He says, you've given enough and more has done. And, and that's so cool because it's not like God is trying to just take and take a take from us. You know, God's not like, hey, hand over the bank account. We're good, you know. Like, he doesn't need that stuff, man. But notice that they have this offering that was a free will offering that they gave out of love. Look at what they had to give. It tells us here in, in great detail. They gave things that were precious metals, the gold and the silver and the bronze. And each of these items is going to be used for a bunch of different um, types of vessels for the ark itself that we'll see in a couple of verses but they each also have significance we know that uh, gold commonly speaks of the deity of god okay we know that silver often speaks of the redemption the fact that people are saved that bronze speaks of the judgment and we'll see that each of the different tools that they make out of the different materials are closely aligned with their their symbolic meaning and their use they gave metals. It says that they gave um, textiles. They gave uh, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair. And again, um, each of these things has a symbolic meaning. The blue represented heaven. The, the purple represented royalty. And of course, we know that the purple was valuable because it wasn't easy to dye something purple. They had to fish something out of the ocean and you know, kill this little guy and get the ink out and then you know, use it to dye. It wasn't an easy process. The red, you know, the red was interesting. In the time of Christ and later Roman emperors um, used red in time of war. You know, it's interesting that in this war, the death, people being subjected, that it would result in the honor of this, these emperors. And it makes me think about the, the honor that results from the death of Christ. The linen itself, the fine linen, represents purity and holiness, glory, represents honor. So that they gave natural materials, skins, woods. It says they gave ram skins and badger skins. When it talks about badger skins, not actual badgers, uh, we think they were dolphins or porpoises. Okay? Just, I don't think there was a word that they used. Like, that's a dolphin, you know. In fact, if you, if you have a King James, it'll say a sea cow. A sea cow. A sea cow. I guess makes some sense. There's, you know, they give milk, right? I guess. How they knew that, I don't know, but I guess they figured it out. And the acacia, when the acacia word is important, we're going to see that return over and over and over again as they're uh, creating the implements here. Uh, acacia wood was a really, really dense wood, a hard wood. Um, denser and heavier than oak even. And because it was so strong, it would be resistant to decay and to even attack from insects, you know, kind of like cedar is as well. And so the result would, they would create something that's going to last for generations here. It says that they would give oil for light and spices for anointing oil and sweet incense and all these different oils really speak of the Holy Spirit. They gave valuable stones, onyx and all these different stones that would be used for the ephod and the breastplate so that they would um, be on the implements that the priests wore when they would serve inside of the tabernacle. <clears throat> And we see that through all of this as they're giving, they're really giving 
all that they have for him, all that they've gotten on account for God. Because we remember that in the Exodus, when they actually left Egypt, that they asked of the Egyptians and the Egyptians gave to them. And it was really payment for all of the lack of payment for the last several hundred years that they were there. And so they came with all of this spoil. And from that, really, they were able to provide for God, which ultimately it's God providing for himself. You know, what, what are the things of value that we offer to God today? The things that we have of value to offer to God aren't the things of us, aren't the things from our own resources. They really and truly are the things that God has already equipped us with himself. They are the spiritual gifts that we have. As God has blessed you and gifted you and called you to use your gifts, you know, he asks you, go ahead and be active. Go ahead and, and give these right back to me because I gave them to you, you know, and I help you to use them well. And know how to use them. But notice the purpose of the tabernacle here in verses 8 and 9. We see that the purpose is first and foremost that it will be a sanctuary where God would meet Israel. That word sanctuary there means a, a, a sacred place. In the Old Testament, it's mo- used a, a lot. Most frequently though, it's used in reference to the tabernacle itself here and also for the temple that Solomon will build later on. You know, but it's interesting that the idea of a sanctuary is not that the place itself is holy because it is holy. But it's holy because of God dwelling there. Because of God's presence. In so much as when we are in a place, the place itself is just a place. This is just a room. But what makes it a holy place is when God meets us here. You know, when God is in our presence. When God is moving and speaking. You know, God, very plainly in Scripture desires to dwell among his people. And the people obviously needed to provide a place for him to dwell. Which is always an interesting idea, that the people provide God a place to dwell in, but the reality is that you know, the heavens can't contain him. You know, that the earth is full of his glory, right? And yet, it, despite all this, even as Christians now, we provide a place for him to live in, in our own selves that he indwells us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Whenever we're talking uh, to the, the, the high school kids, we, we encourage them, you know, saying, you guys know the Lord, you guys, you guys have the Spirit of God, you know, don't go around and doing things that are gonna, it's going to grieve the Holy Spirit. But it's really, it's good encouragement for all of us to ask ourselves, how should we then live with the uh, knowledge that we have God living in us? In 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul writes to the Corinthians. He asks them, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? He says, For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And that really is what God wants. He wants that union, that unity between he and us, that relationship, that intimacy. And that as he meets us, we respond and we reciprocate by living lives that are devoted to him. And we live lives that are holy to him in the same way that this tabernacle was holy. It was dedicated just for him. In what way is your life dedicated for the Lord today? Notice that this place was a sanctuary, but it wasn't something that they fashioned of their own. It says that they followed the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern, it happens over and over and over again. They would follow God's direction and his specific design in fashioning the tabernacle and all of its furnishings and its utensils. Okay. 
because it was a reflection, an earthly version of that heavenly sanctuary. It was a, a replica. We do know that later on this replica is going to re- be replaced by the genuine article when the Lord comes to reign here. And it's neat that of all the things that the Lord put in there, which, by the way, people only saw once a year. One person got to see this once a year. That now, what we have in our relationship with Christ as we get to meet Him and speak to Him and hear Him talk to us is so much better. Because there is no separation. In Hebrews 9, 23 and 24, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, it was necessary, in speaking of these old things, that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, in speaking of the blood. Um, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. See, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so we know that we have this advocate in Christ who's died, and he enters into the holiest of places to make way for us so that when we go to meet him, we're going to see him face to face. He's going to blow us away, you know. But secondly here, we see in verses 10 through 22 that they prepare this sanctuary, but then they start to build the ark and the mercy seat. It says in verse 10, so they shall make, and they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it, and you shall overlay with pure gold inside and out, uh, you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold all around, and you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side, and you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work, you shall make them at the ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The face of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there... I will meet with you and I will speak with you from the, above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. And we, so we, we see two things here, the ark itself, the box, and then the mercy seat, the covering. First, the ark. We get some of the dimensions here of this chest. It talks about the cubits. If you remember, cubits about the tip of a, finger to the elbow, about 18 inches or so. Okay. And so God gave this design. The ark was about a little over two feet wide, two feet, three inches or so wide, three feet, nine inches long, two feet, three inches high. So it was this little rectangular box here. And the precious metals in the wood that the people offered was all used for. The, The structure came from the wood and then the overlay of the gold on it. It's interesting that as the Lord begins to lay out how people are going to worship him. Because that's really what's happening here from chapter 25 on. 
God starts with the thing at the very center of the worship. And that's really the way that God works things. You see, God always starts at the heart of things. He begins with the central aspect, and then he works outward. And really, that's what happens in our own lives. When God grabs us, he grabs our hearts. And then God starts working all the rest, you know, starts whittling away and chiseling and, and changing us, you know. It's exactly how he deals with us. This ark then, starting as a piece of wood that would then be fashioned into this box, it says would be overlaid with pure gold. It says in and out, they'd make moldings all around it that were ornate. And the idea that it's pure gold is really the idea that it's morally and ethically clean, not just good gold itself, but something that is, you know, sacred. Okay. And of course, we know that the gold is the deity, that it's the brilliance and the splendor of the Lord. So the ark had gold inside and out, the value of it, and the value of what's inside of it. You know, something that the people should, should know that it matters, you know. It says that they had poles here for moving the ark, also made of acacia wood, also covered with gold. But the interesting thing is that these poles were never to be removed. Okay. So that as they're covered with gold, anything that came in contact with the ark ultimately had to be clean and pure. And really, that the poles were a buffer so that people would not come in contact with the ark. We, we know from later on, Second Samuel chapter 6, that Uzzah reached out to touch the ark when it kind of started to wobble and he dropped dead right away. You know, and then David's like, whoa, you know, God's scary. Let's, let's leave him here, you know, and then forgets about it for a little while and then goes back and realizes, okay, we didn't do it right. You know, we didn't ask the Lord first. We didn't use the poles like we should have. And they went back and they did it correctly and they used priests. But you see this ark and everything about the way that it's put together and even the way that it's moved from place to place just oozes out the idea that we serve this holy God. This God that is unapproachable by flesh, by sinful flesh, really, because it's not the flesh itself that matters, but it's about why the flesh is what it is, and it is on a kind of sin. You know, Peter, when he writes in 1 Peter, encourages them in 1 Peter 1.13. He tells the Christians, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And so that we adjust our lives, we adjust our ways of thinking, we adjust the things that we focus on, because we understand the character of the God that we serve. And so all of these things that were being built here for the children of Israel was to show them this is God. This is who you serve. This is how he deals with you. This is how much he loves you. The ark, of course, we, it tells us here, would contain the testimony that God would give Israel. The testimony we know is the Ten Commandments which were given on Mount Sinai. And the Ten Commandments were important not just because they had rules, but really because they represented God's covenant with Israel. Later on, they're called the Tables of the Covenant in Deuteronomy 9.9 and 11.15. And of course, we know they're called the Testimony because they bear witness of the fact that God has a covenant with Israel. So then this ark would always keep God's covenant there. Would always keep what is the beginning of the law there. Later on, we're told that it would also contain manna 
from their journey in the desert. It also contained Aaron's staff, which, of course, budded with the almond blossoms, if you remember. And, of course, both these things are symbolic. The manna symbolic of God's provisions for them throughout their journey and the staff of the resurrection of Christ that would come. And so then each of these three things were placed inside of the ark eventually. And you know, what's neat is that as God puts all this stuff in there, it really speaks to how God deals with man, that God is gracious and that God is loving. And that God says, you can come to me because I come to you. And you know, we're privileged that the God of the universe looks on us in this manner with tenderness, with love, which really is holy and completely undeserved. Because the reality is that our sin deserves and demands death. But instead of death, he gives us sonship through his son. He says, no, you get the benefits of being an heir, of being one of my kids. You know, Not because you're good, but because we make a way for that. But notice that secondly, they craft this mercy seat here, which would be uh, fitted on top of the ark. And it, its dimensions mirror that of the ark itself. We see that it's covered in pure gold as well. It says two and a half cubits long by one and a half cubits wide. So it would sit right on top. Okay. Now, the name mercy seat that we see in our Bibles is a bit of a misnomer. In, in the Hebrew, the word is kaporet. And it's not related to mercy at all. And the word isn't related to a seat either because no one sits on it. Instead, the root of the word is derived from a word that means to atone. So that when we think about the way it should be really rendered, it should say the place of atonement. The place where we're made right with God. Okay. And of course, this is the, the place where the high priest would sprinkle the seat, the mercy seat, seven times on the day of atonement, reconciling God to his people. That on this ark, which would be placed... okay. Between the two cherubim, God would dwell and meet Moses and speak to him. Okay. And of course, this is the promise that God makes in number 7, verse 89, where he promises to meet with the men from above the mercy seat, it says. So you have this place that's centered around making God accessible to man. All through death. You know, it's interesting that when it talks about this idea of a mercy seat, of a place of atonement. These are the same kinds of terms that we see used from the, in the Septuagint, from the Old Testament to New Testament, as they talk about Christ as well. You know, Romans 3.25, it says, speaking of Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, that's actually the same root word, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. And so God has this red through line all the way of Christ that everything speaks of his coming death. You know, there's this great book. I don't know if they saw it in the bookstore here um, where it's a bunch of sermons from Spurgeon that are all about Christ in the Old Testament. And it's really neat because it's Christ in the Old Testament in, in the law, in the ceremonies, in the prophets. You know, it's just, it's a, it's an amazing thing because he just draws all these parallels and we're like, how am I missing that every time I read? You know, when you're falling asleep there in numbers, you're like, wait a second, you know, the Lord wants to talk to me here. <laughs> I've got to figure out what it is. Maybe we need to listen a little more. You know, God meets man in the place where the blood of the lamb's been sprinkled. And so then access only comes through death. 
And we, we see that rule played out in living color later on as this becomes an active, uh, well, an active butcher, yeah? In Hebrews 9, 11, speaking of Christ, it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He says, look it. You had God in flesh die for you. How could that not take care of what you need? How could that just not cure the ailment of sin in your life and change the way that you do everything? It comes through the death of Christ. Later on in, in 1 John, it tells us that, John is the, uh, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, saying, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He says, not for ours only, he says, but also for the whole world, which we're, we do well to remember. And as we see the way that God sets up this method of meeting him in the Old Testament, we are reminded that God is the one who initiates the relationship with us, that he's the one who seeks us out, that he's the one who does the work of allowing that meeting to happen, and he's the one who sees it all the way through. So as the Lord spoke one day in your life, and you responded, and you came to him, and you accepted him, and he filled you with his Holy Spirit, and he gives you the spirit and the power and the knowledge to be able to serve him on a daily basis. You know, how can we not be successful in him daily? The only reason we're ever not successful in him is, in, is when we start to rely on our own resources, when we start to get our eyes off of the prize, when we get distracted by situations and desires. It's interesting as you go through the Old Testament, how when you look in the lives of all of these great men of God, it's, all, it's God who seeks them. You know, It was God who told Noah about how to get saved from that flood, right? It was God who told Abraham about crossing the desert and getting the land and having all of these kids that he knew nothing about. It was God who called David out of, the shepherd, uh, uh, out of shepherding to be the anointed king of Israel. And we see it over and over and over again. And this same rule holds true to our lives. And so then our response is to serve him humbly, to serve him gratefully, to be able to say, okay, Lord, I know that it's not because of the things that I deserve. I know it's all because of you and your love, and I know what it costs. So helping to make it count. It says as they make this mercy seat here, they would put two cherubim on top, and these cherubim are angels. Um, we don't know tons about them. We know that they had faces. We presume faces like like humans, they had wings. Um, elsewhere, it talks about angels having six wings. Um, it doesn't talk about six wings here. But these cherubim are mentioned very early in the Bible. They're mentioned as early as Genesis 3.24, when they're placed outside of the Garden of Eden, so that man would not enter and eat from the tree of, uh, of life. And so really, they represent the protection of God for future redemption, that God saves us. Think about all the times probably should have been done with 
and done for. And God didn't let it happen to you because he knew that it wasn't time yet. So that, that guy needs to get saved. <laughs> we, we, there's still more to be done there. That the, these cherubim is interesting. Their main purpose ultimately is to worship God, you know, to give him love. And really that's us as well. You know, is God the object of your adoration today? Is he, like we say so often, that master passion in your life? These cherub would be at the end of each end of the mercy seat, it tells us. And of course, the artisans would make it all out of one piece, both the table that goes on top of the ark and the cherub, the cherubim together. And it says that their wings would stretch out across as they faced each other, so that their faces would be face to face and the wings covering like this. So if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, it, uh, it's actually not a bad representation. They do a decent job. Other than people's faces melting off. I don't know about that. <laughs> and so these cherubs are facing each other. These wings cover the top of the mercy seat. And the mercy seat sits on top of the Ark of the Testimony as, it's put in, as the testimony is put inside of it. And God, it says, would meet them by resting on top of the testimony, which is pretty cool to think about, that God meets them on the foundation of his commitment to them. You know. And of course, it tells us here that God will meet Moses here at the ark and that he would speak to them from above it, from between the cherubim. It says he's going to talk to Moses about everything from which he's going to give him commandments. So I'm going to let you know my mind, Moses. I'm going to speak to you what I think and what I want and how to direct these people. You know, That's a blessing. Moses didn't have to figure everything out on his own. right? We know Moses... It was a reluctant leader that he tried to get out of it. And the Lord said, no, you're, you're the guy. You know, you're going to go ahead and do this. And it was a constant you know, push and pull in his life, really. But what a blessing to know that we don't have to figure things out as well. Like it says in Psalm 46, 1, that God is our refuge and strength, that he's a very present help in time of trouble. You know, it's interesting that in that Psalm, Psalm 46, later on, it says, so then because of all the things that God does, he says, so then be still. So then know that I am God, that I will be exalted among the people. As God would meet uh, Moses here to speak his mind so that he can uh, disseminate this to the people, God likewise provides for our access to him today. Where God says, okay, I've paved the way through my son. Now let me talk. Listen. Which is sometimes really hard. Yeah. That be still part, you know, in Psalm 46, that's the hard part. Yeah. Because a lot of times we can intellectually, like, yes, I know you're God, but then can we still our, our hearts? Can we quiet our minds? You know, and allow him to start speaking because that's what it takes. Do we meet with him? Do we make that effort? Do we listen when we're there? Sometimes we go through the motions. Things, things become, uh, you know, religious, right? Going to church is a thing we do on Sundays. Sometimes serving becomes that kind of a thing. And God help us if that's where we end up, you know. That we're driven by that love for him instead. By the love for people that's born out of our love for him. So that God would meet them here, it tells us in verse uh, 22 here. But in verses 23 down to 30... It talks about this table for showbread. 
It says, So you shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a hand breadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it uh, four rings of gold and put the rings in the four corners that are at its four legs. And the rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and that the table may be carried with them. And you shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. And so we see first the construction of this table here. Also made of acacia wood, same thing as the ark. Also overlaid with gold. And again, about two cubits long, a cubit wide. So it's about two feet long, about 18 inches wide. You get the idea. And so this table here, it's interesting when it talks about the table, it's really talking about a table that's used for kings. A table that's set aside for special things, okay? For sacred uses. And they'd overlay this thing with pure gold and all the way around it so that it demonstrates the holiness of its purpose. That it's not common. And these four rings, of course... For the poles, just like the ark, so that it would be carried with poles as well. So, you know, they had Levites who would carry these things, of course, on their shoulders, we know. For God only knows how long they had to carry this stuff. So they made these poles of acacia wood as well and also overlaid them. It says they even made all the dishes and the pans and the pitchers and the bowls for pouring out also of pure gold. Anything that touched the holy things needed to be separated and consecrated for that purpose. That principle of the Holy God coming up in living color in the way that they're preparing all of this. No wonder that when they raided the temple, they took all the implements, yeah? I mean, just value everywhere, you know. Beautiful. Must have been pretty wild in there. It says the table, though, would be used um, to honor God. It says that they would put the showbread there on the table before God, and it would be there at all times. And this bread was there every single day that they lay it out. And God was very specific about how to make it in Leviticus 24, 5 and 6. He talks about the flour that they use and they bake 12 cakes with it. You know, it would be an ephah on each cake. And they would set them in two rows, six in a row on a pure gold table before God. So that you'd have these 12 little loaves that just sat there all week before God. And really those 12 loaves are obviously equal to the 12 tribes of Israel. So that as it was laid on this table, it says with blue cloth, it tells us in November in Numbers uh, 4, verse 7, every single week, like it says in Leviticus 24, 8, so that every week they'd make it new and place it there. And the idea is that as it's there before, that Israel is there before God, before the face of God, as he looks on them. And that this bread was a holy thing, just like they were. Consider the ramifications for us as believers as God looks on us in our lives, as we are laid bare, of course, and as we have communion with him, because the reality is that this special bread was eaten. It wasn't just there to left to go still. We know the priests would eat it, and they'd have this, this type of communion, so to speak. 
so that as, as it supports his fellowship with God, it really supports their spiritual connection to him as well as God provides for them. All of these things are just shadows of Christ, of course. See, in John 6.32, Jesus um, hearkens unto this and talks to the people and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, hey, manna wasn't anything. The show bread, that ain't nothing either. He says, I, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the thing you need. All those things spoke of me. I'm what fulfills you. In that same chapter, later on in verse 50, he's talking to, the, to them again. And he says, so this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. You know, people flipped out when they heard this, yeah. If you keep reading that chapter, so later on people just, they, they left. They're like, forget this guy. He's nuts. He's talking about eating them. You know, and we cannot, we can't abide this and we know he was talking about the, his death on the cross. You know, God spoke to the children of Israel on all these things. In the showbread, in the mercy seat, in the ark. The priests would go in there daily. And of course, you know, the reality is that all of these images wasn't enough, were they? They, they didn't do anything special for the people unless their hearts were open and devoted to God unless they wanted that relationship with God that he initiated. In the same way that the people that hear, heard Jesus talk in John chapter 6 that saw Jesus speak, it wasn't enough for them to see and to hear him right there in the flesh for the, some of them to be converted. So they just walked away shaking their head, you know. And for some people, it, it isn't ever enough. Hmm. Thank God that we responded to the call. Now, at one point, it became real. It's like, whoa, this is, I can't run away from this anymore. You know, that this is, this is the real thing. And so the, these priests would, would see this every single day and they, they'd remember this. The lampstands were the last thing it talks about here, verses 31 through 40. It talks about how these lampstands would be made of pure gold in verse 31. The lampstands would be made of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers would be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that came out of the, uh, come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself... Four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. 
It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. So see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So we see the form and the significance of the lampstands first. That they make these lampstands first again out of that hammered pure gold here. And of course, if you know that when you hammer something, you make it thin. Obviously, they weren't thin. They were round. So we don't really know what it means when it talks about them hammering it at any rate. They're made of the same gold as everything else. So that you know, even the, light, the lighting was holy in here. And when we talk about the lampstands, we remember that they weren't candle holders. They were actual lamps. They had little reservoirs for the oil and wicks so that you'd light it. The candles weren't invented yet. Not until further down the road. Okay? So that's why they, they had people tend to these uh, all the time. The form of these lampstands really speaks of how God interacts and redeems mankind. Uh, notice that they're very specific about the fact that it makes and looks like an almond tree. Yes, and of course, if you've seen a menorah, that's, this is what it is, really. It has room here for seven lights. We know that it has one shaft that comes straight up and three coming out of each side here. And that they were lit using olive oil, tells us in Leviticus 24.2, which is also, of course, holy oil. The, the different parts of it all represent different things. The stem represents Israel. The branches represent the church as they've grown out of Israel. The, the fact that it has the almonds representative of the resurrection and the oil that's used in it to light it and give it fuel, the Holy Spirit. So then they would arrange these seven lamps in front of the table. Of course, we know seven is a number of completion. And we also know that when John has his vision and revelation that there's the seven lampstands before the Lord, right? And tells them there that, hey, these seven lampstands, they represent the seven churches here. And of course, they do, in fact, give light. We do know in Scripture that God's people are called to give light to the world, to bear witness of him, of all the things that he's done for them and for all mankind. So then that this testimony is something that's borne out through the spirit-filled life, this oil that's there. You know, Christ called himself the light of the world in John 14, 6 and John 14, 9. And so when we have to ask ourselves, are we being a light to this world? Matthew 5, 18 says, So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Is that what we're doing? That they glorify God because of the things that we're obedient to him? It says the utensils were made all out of one, you know, amount of gold. This is a whole talent. A talent, if you didn't know, is between 75 and 80 pounds. So an awful lot of gold there. Okay. And God finishes by reminding them. He says, everything that you do, you make it according to the path. Follow the directions. It's like baking. Uh, I don't know if you guys are much, very much for cooking in here, not by the looks of things. Maybe more on the eating side. But, uh, you know, anything about baking... If you put something in at the wrong time, it just follows everything up. You know, it's, it's amazing. It's almost like chemistry. You know, they put the one thing, you're like, hey, throw that. And they're like, don't touch it. Don't touch You're going to mess it up. You know, like, all right, fine. Call me when it's done. You know, make sure it's good. And so very much in that, same, in that same vein, God's saying, you follow the directions here. And he's specific, again, because this tabernacle is a replica of the throne room of heaven, being only a shadow of the things to come, like it says in Hebrews 10.1. So then as we think about the God that we serve, the God that calls us into fellowship with him, 
How do we approach him? How do we approach a holy God? We're going to finish up with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. In Hebrews 10, 19, you know the book of Hebrews is all about um, how Jesus is, of course, better than the law. It's always an easy way to remember it. In verse 19, we get to a conclusion statement. And he says, So therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised us is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So what do we do knowing that we have the boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies as we live, right? We draw near to God. We serve God together. We stay committed to the faith because we understand that he's coming quick. And as we look around, we know that that's more true today than it was yesterday. It'll be more true tomorrow than it was today. And so let's draw near to the Lord and see what he has for us. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your love. Lord, we're humbled by, by it continually. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to submit to you more, to allow you to use us in the ways that you see fit, whether they're uncomfortable or not, whether they're convenient or not, Lord. We thank you for the body of believers that we have here, the fellowship in you. And it's such a blessing and an encouragement, Lord, to be among other men who are seeking you to be encouraged by one another. We thank you for your love and your goodness. I pray that you be with us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.